Welcome to the Diagnosing Dementia During COVID-19 podcast. This six-part podcast is brought to you by the Understanding Dementia Diagnosis Research Team and funded by the Economic and Social Research Council. Hi everyone and welcome to our third episode. My name is Lindsay Kinnaird and I am a researcher on the project. This is episode three of six and for today's episode we are going to be sharing some excerpts from a conversation we had with three clinicians who delivered dementia diagnosis in Scotland. This conversation was recorded in June 2021 one year and four months after the initial UK lockdown in March 2020. The clinicians you will hear speaking are Catherine Pennington, Lucy Sterland and Tom Russ. Catherine is a consultant neurologist who works in a memory clinic in Edinburgh and for NHS Forth Valley. Lucy is an old age psychiatrist in training who works for the NHS in the borders. Tom is an old-age psychiatrist in Edinburgh, a researcher at the University of Edinburgh and the principal investigator for the Understanding Dementia Diagnosis Research Project. In today's episode, you may hear some terms that you aren't familiar with, such as collateral history, which is when a clinician asks a relative or carer a series of questions to understand the patient's cognitive and functioning history, such as How long have the symptoms been present and how fast have they progressed? Another term is the acronym MATS, which stands for the Memory Assessment and Treatment Service. We thought it might be helpful to start with the clinicians explaining the usual process they follow when delivering a diagnosis pre-pandemic. Dr Catherine Pennington and Dr Tom Russ. Um, So normally, pre-pandemic, in the Edinburgh Memory Assessment and Treatment Service Clinic, and and I would say that pretty much every memory clinic is slightly different in how they organise things, but we get referrals probably 90% from GP, um, a small number from hospitals, um, and the person uh, then comes in for an initial assessment face-to-face with a member of nursing staff. They do a very, very detailed background history, um, they also get collateral history from a friend or relative that comes with the person and they do the Adam Ritz cognitive examination, which is a hundred point pen and paper scale. Um, and that information all gets typed up and they get a doctor's appointment at the same, not on the same day, but they, so they come back for a second visit with the doctor. The doctor's got all that information and the doctor may give a diagnosis the same day. If they feel there's sufficient information, they may say, you know, you need a brain scan or you need other tests or it's not very clear what's going on come back in six months or a year and we'll retest you so i guess yeah thinking about the 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 normal process first i suppose so so in the consultation um a a sort of ideal normal consultation at least with the mats model where it's very nurse-led and you've got the majority of the assessment already done before they come to see me um is is that you'd you'd have a relative there who knows the person really well and you'd I I always would revisit the 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 sort of the main 
the main complaints with the with the person themselves first. And it, it's quite common that they they not not be bothered by any memory problems whatsoever. And so I'd I'd ask the 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 relative. I'm I'm always at pains to kind of highlight that it, that we don't do that because we don't believe the person, but it's more just to get as full a perspective as possible. Um, and I I normally um kind of highlight that there's something that the person knows about themselves that nobody else knows. So we have to ask them about that. But there are other things that other people will notice that they're not aware of. So we have to ask somebody else about those sorts of things. And so I, I usually go over the the history more more because it would be a little bit odd just to kind of dive in without covering that ground myself, I, I find. Um, and then I'll usually try and summarise and put it all together and, and check that I've understood correctly and there's not anything that that we've missed that's important. Um, and then at that point, if I'm making a diagnosis, I'll usually um, start doing it at that stage. And I, I usually lead up to it very uh, gently, if I can, <clears throat> to sort of start by saying that I don't think that this is just a normal process of getting older and then move on to say that I think this is probably an illness. And I guess I'm 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 kind of gauging their response at each each point with that as well. And mo most people kind of it's it's kind of pretty uh, fine to kind of go about it that way and then I'll mention I think I think actually this is the early stages of dementia and I'll usually usually pause at that point and sometimes sometimes people just take it in their stride the relatives often it's not a surprise for them at that stage the person themselves it varies how they experience that sometimes it's sometimes there's there's kind of very little reaction whatsoever sometimes people start to cry at that point sometimes it's something that that they that they've kind of sort of suspected themselves and I'll usually pause then and ask if there are any any questions and when the pandemic hit we wondered what was the impact on the numbers of people Catherine Lucy and Tom were seeing talking to our nurses we definitely had a slump in referrals and um, kind of this time last year it really went down um and I don't know how much of that was people not going to their GP or uh, families not seeing relatives and not realising they were changing or GPs not referring. Um, and then it picked back up again. And I suspect we've got a bit of a hump because our waiting list is pretty terrible. Dr Lucy Sterland. I think across all of healthcare in March 2020, the Western General was cleared to make way for this huge wave of people coming in. Um, I think everything was very quiet. Referrals to clinics went down because, yeah, for, as Catherine said, various different reasons. Um, so we did a bit of diagnosing in the in the West and just just the odd person. And I suppose the main thing with that is seeing the patient doing cognitive tests and then speaking to a, a relative or whatever on the phone. So it isn't that much different than you probably would have done outside of COVID. Um, although it's slightly unusual to diagnose dementia when someone's in general hospital, but if they're in for a very long time, and it's clear that that's what the issue is. Um, actually diagnosed dementia in somebody who wouldn't have engaged in anything in the community anyway. So as opportunistically seeing her while she was in hospital and making that diagnosis was probably helpful. Next, we asked them to discuss the particular challenges that they encountered when making a video or telephone diagnosis of dementia. Pandemic, we just went straight to you know, obviously we had quite a few people who'd maybe already had a face-to-face -face initial assessment with the nurses. So they had a telephone consultation with the doctor for the first time. Other people who'd seen a doctor already and were coming back for a second time. Um, but for anybody who is new, 
um, they had a telephone initial assessment with the nurses. So they were still able to get a very detailed history in most cases, and they would get permission to talk to a friend or relative to get a detailed lateral history. And then we started doing a modified version of the Addenbrooke's cognitive examination. So we just had to cut out anything that you needed, um, uh, you know, needed to see. Basically, they did try and do it via video, but it just didn't really work. The resolution's not good enough. Um, so it ends up being out of 62 and it didn't have anything in terms of your handwriting or your reading or anything like that in it. Um, and then they would similarly have a telephone consultation with the doctor and you might get a diagnosis during that consultation. Um, and often that would be on speakerphone. I did um, manage to do the whole of the, the cognitive test with one patient on the, the video call, which, which was so, so helpful actually, because you could see the process of them doing it. But actually, our, 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 yeah, implicit in all this is the fact that our IT um, in the NHS clinic was just isn't up to doing video calls. And then I did the full Edinburgh's cognitive examination over video by holding it up to the camera um, and then writing things down at the other end and holding it up, usually not to the camera, usually they held it up to the screen. <laughs> it's like, left a bit, left a bit. Um, but that, I mean, that worked, I think, as well as it could. Again, the only thing you can't do is take a pulse. Um, I would sort of ask the GP if they happen to have a record of recent pulse. <laughs> There's only you know, some things you just can't do. I think all the clinicians have done things slightly differently and I think difference you know in the other services I work in it's been different from clinician to clinician I think we initially stopped doing a lot we didn't stop but I was initially saying to people quite confidently I'm sure it'll be back to normal by the autumn autumn 2020 <laughs> so I was deferring quite a lot of patients you know I was having a consultation um, and I was giving them advice and you know putting in place support if it was needed but I was saying we'll get you back for a face-to-face -face appointment in the autumn and then obviously that different didn't happen and it became clear it wasn't going to happen so I moved to more actually giving more telephone diagnoses rather than kind of putting people in a little bit of a holding pattern um so we pre-covid the consultant would usually have four consultations per clinic which would be mostly new patients um and then I went to a pattern of having five every week. Um, but I think that was partly because I was just bringing back more people because it was harder to diagnose them over the phone. Um, and we've only in the last few weeks gone back to doing more face to face. And I don't know about you, Tom, but I was due to have a full face to face clinic today, which unfortunately I just had to switch back to telephone because I'm self-isolating again. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I had a similar approach to, to you, Catherine. I, I, I thought I, it felt better to me to pause my consultations completely rather than see people and, and kind of defer them, which on reflection might have been a a, a good thing to do. But, but I did what felt right at the time anyway. Um, but yeah, it, it, I'm, I'm going back to this kind of mostly face to face now, which is which is a great joy. But you are communicating through masks, which make things a lot, a lot more difficult. Um, no, sorry. So, yeah, in the borders, I think there was a bit of a different experience because in the first wave of COVID, their, their rates were pretty low. So by the time I got there in August, um, I started off doing home visits already. So I didn't do anything over the phone at that point. And a home visit would, uh, so the the way our service works, if it's at home, it's just one clinician that goes. If it's a nurse that goes, they then feed back to a doctor and, and there's a, usually a second visit. But if I was doing one, I would go and take the history and usually with family members, take all the collateral information do the cognitive test in their home, make the diagnosis, and then refer to a separate post-diagnostic support team who come and see them at home. Um, so that obviously in in August and things, that was as it would have been. I think 
um, I've never done a clinic in person in the borders because I think they, I think it's been more difficult to book clinic rooms um, through COVID. So it's easier for us to go and see people at home. And I think probably slightly better for them because I'm not, I might, I might see two or th maximum three people in a day at home. Whereas if they came into a clinic, there'd be a lot of footfall with other people. So I suppose they're more protected. Um, and also, you know, things like we get tested three times a week in the borders, so uh, hopefully reduces any spread. Um, and but then when this when the, this whatever it was second or third wave hit in the winter, things went back to being um, not doing home visits unless it was an emergency. And at that time, people offered, and I think this is what happened in the first wave. People were offered a near me appointment, so these video appointments. And if they said no, then they're basically put on a waiting list until things reopened. We did very little over the phone, I think, because it was just so difficult to get the information. But fortunately, we had quite good quality, reliable internet cameras, all that sort of thing. So if somebody could use near me video consultation, and that meant usually they had to have a relative helping them. Um, I did do a few dementia assessments over the video. And again, that was me doing everything. So I would speak to them and their relatives. That's a bit tricky because sometimes you can speak to the relatives in private in person where it's a bit more difficult on video call to say would you mind just and, and you weren't always sure as well who was watching we asked the clinicians to explain further who is typically with the person when they are being diagnosed remotely often people would have their relatives in the room and the patient and both be on speakerphone but sometimes you'd ring up and you'd just get the patient and you wouldn't be able to get hold of a relative and you spend time chasing the relative um, to get collateral history sometimes they wouldn't give you permission to talk to a relative or sometimes you'd only be able to get hold of the relative or you might have a patient who isn't able to talk on the phone so you know people who are hard of hearing so there were a number of people where i just couldn't communicate with them on the phone full stop um, or people who had pretty significant impairments who aren't able to communicate on the phone i think the main thing that's tricky is when people don't have any family members to ask for a collateral history because so much of the diagnosis hinges on the story that you get from um, people other than the patient themselves and so if they are alone for whatever reason and you know either they've got no family at all or the family live in Australia or whatever it is it can be really difficult to know and, and even if you know they might have a neighbour who provides a lot of support but they won't always give you consent to speak to the neighbour or if you, or they might not realise the extent of the problems and so you, it's very difficult to get collaterals from people who aren't family members as well. I think that's much more challenging as people who live alone and don't have very much in the way of support. Finally, we were interested to know if they were able to get a sense of the impact on the person's care partner. Sometimes families are almost often relieved and sometimes it's helpful to know that the person that, you know, often they say, this, you know, he's not the man he used to be or whatever, or that they're behaving in a way that they never used to behave. You know, they've lost interest in the family or things like that and actually hearing that that's because of an illness can sometimes be helpful because they realise it's not the patient doing it deliberately, it's not that person choosing to ignore the grandchildren or whatever it is, that sometimes that can be helpful. Some, yeah, sometimes you just very much pick up on the environment. Um, and I do, I can, I can talk a bit about the borders in a minute, but I do a lot of home visits and I think being in someone's house, often with multiple generations of family, pets, photos around you, you get this really personal interaction. And sometimes, you know, families are welling up and you're almost joining in. So it very much depends on, on them, I think, and their reaction.
because I was very reluctant to do telephone clinics and I thought it would be a total disaster initially and then it actually worked out I think from my point of view surprisingly well um I think you know during COVID looking at obviously what's happened to surgical waiting lists they're an absolute nightmare I think just being able to offer something is is better um than nothing but actually I think a lot of, for a lot of people if they have a setup where you know they're sat at home on the phone but on a speakerphone with a family member there as you know supportive family member I think it went okay and most people seem to be okay with it um, I think I was cherry picking the people where it was a fairly clear diagnosis. Um, so in many cases, the family had already come to a conclusion. In some cases, the patients already agreed with that. So I think most people reacted OK. Um, yeah, and it's, it's it's gone better than I expected. But obviously, I don't I've not got any feedback from patients at all. So um, I think the families were grateful that a service was continuing from what people have said. But it's difficult to, to to say more than that. But it, I would say it's been better than I thought it would be overall. But I don't know what Tom and Lucy think. I'd, I'd agree with you that the, the setup you described there is definitely the least worst option um, of doing things over, over the telephone. Uh, it's when somebody's on their own that it was really challenging. Because um, then there's all questions about should you disclose the diagnosis at that point in time anyway, and all sorts of cans of worms. What, what about you, Lucy? I think I'm just thinking of the, there are very few that I did, I suppose, over video and I didn't do any over the phone. Um, I'm just remembering, though, that there were a couple of people I did a video call with and said, you know, I think this is probably not dementia at the moment or, you know, said I'd see them in future or something like that. Um, and then I got they basically got re-referred or asked if I would see them when things opened up again. There's one particular patient with complicated mixture of different illnesses who's who I did a video call with her and her daughter and said, you know, I think this is not something at the moment we need to worry about. When things opened up again, the daughter contacted the GP and says, can you get that psychiatrist to come and see us in person? Um, and actually, it, well, I think part of that was that it emerged after having that phone call, that video call, that was a lot more going on than the daughter realised. And so it, it opened up other things. But yes, I think some people, although it seemed to go fine at the time, afterwards said, actually, can you come and do a proper job now? <laughs> which I, was a bit disheartening for me because I thought the video thing had gone all right and then clearly people were wanting to see as if they could. Thank you for listening today. I have been talking to Dr Catherine Pennington, Dr Lucy Sterland and Dr Tom Russ about their experiences of delivering a dementia diagnosis during the COVID-19 pandemic. Next episode, we will be discussing co-producing research with stakeholders, sometimes referred to as patient and public involvement in research. If you want to know more about the project, you can visit us at the Alzheimer Scotland Dementia Research Centre website.